You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we sit down with Rich Resgatis, a.k.a. Raz. Since 2002, he has served in CEO president-level roles in several venture capital-backed startups, privately held turnaround and growth companies, and he brings insight from those experiences to his work today at Flowwater. Raz was the CEO of several consumer tech companies, including Dealon, an e-commerce company that developed the web's first deal commerce exchange, and another, My Town Perks, which built the first PCI complaint cloud-based loyalty program for B2B. Both companies were subsequently acquired. On today's show, we talk about what is the current problem with the state of water here domestically and globally? What are the challenges of a hardware company when it comes to cash flow? How is a hardware company's growth different than a software company's? How can refill stations be positioned as smart devices? And what is it really like to be a founder of a growing hardware company? This and much more on today's episode of Silicon Valley. You are listening to Silicon Valley by The Investor's Podcast, where your host, Sean Flynn, interviews famous entrepreneurs and business leaders in tech. Discover how money is made in Silicon Valley and where tech is going before it gets there. Thank you for taking the time today to be a guest here on Silicon Valley. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here. Now, Raz, you have an amazing background. Can you give us a little history of what you've done before your current role as CEO and co-founder of Flowwater? Sure. I uh, went to a small school in Indiana and graduated, wanted to live either on the east or west coast. And ideally, it was going to be New York or San Francisco and ended up starting my career at a Fortune 500 company. So I worked at J&J for a while. And then I also worked at Eli Lilly, another Fortune 500 company, ironically moving back to Indiana for that job at corporate headquarters. And then I just got the startup. I remember actually flying out to San Francisco for a variety of market research projects when I was at Eli Lilly. And I was working on a product called eVista, which is for perimenopausal and postmenopausal women. So I think I know more about menopause than any other person other than an OBGYN at the age of like 23, 24, 25. And I remember going and sitting in these market research groups. It was actually really fascinating stuff, but I would be driving up and down 101 and you could just feel the energy. You know, you could see the billboards and feel the energy and all the startup ecosystem that was starting to form. And this is in 97, 98, 99, and got an opportunity to um, join a startup company in New York City and jumped at that to kind of go pursue entrepreneurial ambitions. And then from there, that really just changed my full course. I mean, I went from big corporate environments where I got classically trained in sales, marketing, biz dev, corporate stuff, corporate strategy, and moved right into a startup world. And so I worked for a startup in New York City, which ended up exiting to iVillage, later bought by NBC, ran a privately held consumer products company that I took into retail, and then a moderate-sized consumer goods company where I worked for the former CEO of Avon for about five years. And then two startups since then prior to Flowwater, both in the tech space. One was in New York, which was a Groupon competitor. Another was in Silicon Valley here. And then that brought me to Flowwater. Tell us a little bit about Flowwater and what is the current problem with the state of water here domestically and globally in the U.S.? 
Well, I'll start first with flow water. So the entire mission of our company is to put an end to single-use plastic water bottles. But the vision is bigger than that, which is to change the way the world thinks about, consumes, and ultimately how we distribute water. If you look at the problem in the U.S., there's a multitude of problems. I'm going to start first with single-use plastic pollution, but also not just single-use plastics, but single-use packaging for water itself. You know, it's funny, when we started the company years ago, I think people just saw us as maybe initially kind of a couple of hippies in California that were going to try to do something that was good for the environment. And while that might be true, I mean, I've been probably accused with my long hair of uh, being a hippie before or a bit of a bohemian. And while we did also want to do something good for the environment, there was a much bigger opportunity behind this, which is to really radically change the way that people view water and to move to a decentralized, democratized, distributed water platform. And I'm going to come back to what that actually means in a minute. But if we really start with what the problem is, the biggest problem is plastics are decimating the environment, right? And so that's unequivocal anymore. So six years ago, people saw this kind of a cute little hippie project. Now, investors and consumers and businesses see this as a clear megatrend. And in fact, Every time I saw an article on plastic pollution, I used to circulate it to my investors. That was in 2013. There were like three a year that were notable, right? And then it was like 20 a year. Now it's like 20 a day. If you just look in your social media feed alone and Facebook or Instagram as it relates to this major migration away from plastics. And the problem with plastics are that they don't biodegrade, they photodegrade. So one piece turns into two, turns into four, turns into eight, and then it turns into microplastics. And in fact, a recent study in SUNY about a year ago showed that there were over 300 pieces of microplastics per liter of both bottled and tap water. So over 90% actually of bottled and tap water it was like 93% for bottled water. I think it was 91% for tap water. The ultimate irony here is that we've put so much debris, so much trash, so much plastic into the ecosystem that we are now literally drinking the plastic that we've been polluting the environment with. So plastics are a huge problem, single use, and it's extremely wasteful. Uh, you know, and I could go on and on about stats, 50 billion single-use plastic water bottles end up in oceans, lakes, rivers, and landfills. The majority of them don't get recycled. Even with tremendous recycling education efforts over a period of many, many years, recycling is still only about 25% of the time. Even in places like San Francisco, where everyone says they recycle, the reality is the number is much lower to what the standard index is across the United States. You look at, okay, well, we've got a problem with plastics. We've got a problem with single-use packaging. And there's a clear, indisputable megatrend away from plastics. And people are running from it. I look at it as the new environmental cigarette, right? I mean, people look at plastic water bottles. And at some point over the next 10 years, people are going to look at someone sitting on stage or drinking a bottle of water in the same way that we look at somebody today smoking a cigarette. Smoking used to be 46% of the United States in the 60s. And now it's down to like 16, 17%. And part of that is health reasons. Part of that is taxation that's occurred. But part of that is just social pressure, right? It's become a very uncool thing to do. Then you look at the other side of the equation. You say, well, why are plastics and why are plastic water bottles and why is bottled water such a big business? And the problem in the U.S. particularly, I'll spend a little bit of time talking internationally, but mostly domestic U.S. The problem in the U.S. is that the majority of consumers, and when I say the majority, all the data shows anywhere between 65 and 77% consumers either don't like or don't trust or don't like the taste of tap water. The problem in the U.S. isn't that, gosh, if there were only enough water spigots across where I could fill up my bottle, that's not the problem. There's water, there's kind of more water 
access per capita in the US than there ever has been before over the last 50, 100 years. Or the problem is that consumers don't like it. And if consumers don't like something, they're not going to do it. So kind of going back to this platform. And so how I see this business and this market evolving and what we're driving towards is distributed, decentralized, democratized water where everybody has clean access to drinking water that they love and they trust. Now, you had talked about sending news articles to your investors about plastic waste. Can you talk a little bit about the investors' kind of appetite for environmentally, socially impactful companies? There's a simple answer to that, but I actually think there's a little bit of complexity behind it. What I generally believe, and when I'm talking to investors, I focus on a major, number one, megatrend that's happening that's undeniable, that is the next shift, right? This is the next oil for the following decade. And it's also kind of the next environmental cigarette as it relates to single-use plastic. So one is a market shift, which is the market was one way years ago, something happened, and there's a new reality today. The second one is a TAM, right? Which is water is one of the biggest TAMs that total addressable market that exists in the world. And so you've got a clear megatrend away from single-use packaging. There's a massive market behind it. And there's nobody doing what we're doing, which is building literally the world's first branded tap water at the source that's distributed, that doesn't require people shipping water all over the US, all over the world. So when I talk about social impact with investors, I really first focus on the business fundamentals around big market, big mega trend, proof points in our business, 5,000 units deployed, great unit economics, super high take rate on free trials. That's over 90%, incredibly low churn, less than 5%. So I focus really on driving the story and the narrative around proof points and metrics, and then back it up with the fact that this is something that they can also feel great about. And I think that's, there certainly is a growing sentiment and an investor interest around doing well and doing good. At the same time, there's, I think, a bit of a juxtaposition with that, which I think often investors sometimes are conflicted where they feel like, gosh, I want to do well with my financial investments, but I also want to do good socially, and I don't want to compromise the doing well by doing good. And I think those two things in balance need to be there. I, I think investors that have impact funds, of which there are a growing number, I mean, it's, there, there's many more impact-focused funds on a double or triple bottom line today than there were 10 years ago. That being said, when I talk about this business, I generally talk about it both from pure metrics and a market perspective, as well as a doing good perspective. And I think this is one of these great opportunities. And it's one of the things that drew me to this business is that it's a great business case around putting investment dollars behind something that can have a huge social impact that spans for decades to come, but they can also do really well financially as a result of it without compromising. Now, has your company only raised funding through venture capitalists or kind of what has been the, the funding up until this point, all the different avenues that have been tried? We've gone through quite a few. So seed round capital, not atypical for any company here in the Valley that incubates. And so we're based in Denver, Colorado, as of the last three and a half years. But for the first several years, primarily incubated out of Silicon Valley and Burlingame and San Francisco. And Angel Capital, first round was, you know, it was a little bit of friends and family from earlier stages, but the first significant round of seed capital came through a million dollar angel investment. And then 
we did a bridge round. We did a series A. We did a crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding. So not kind of crowdfunding in the sense that you typically think of it, but there's actually an equity crowdfunding platform that we used to raise half a million dollars. We did venture debt as well with WTI, which has been a great supporter of us. And they're typically doing venture debt deals sitting alongside Parapasu with venture dollars, but they actually came into the company earlier. I'd worked with them before. They knew the company, they knew me, they uh, loved the product. And so they actually invested with venture debt. And then we raised another bridge round and then a series B. And that series B, that last stage of investment that we most recently obtained was in December of 2018 for $15 million. So 22 million in to date through a lot of rounds of capital. I think capital gets easier to raise as you go early stages. It's, I think, a bit more difficult just because you have so many people that are incubating various ideas and particularly for a new and emerging market, right? Today, I get inquiries from investors every week and big name investors, names I won't use on this podcast, but all names that you would know over the last two, three, four months have been inbound leads saying, hey, we've seen your trajectory. We've seen the trend. We know what's happening in the market. We'd like to talk to you. That didn't happen six years ago. And so when you get a new and emerging category that hasn't been proven out, I think it's a little bit harder to raise the earlier dollars and it gets easier as you go, provided, of course, that your metrics are there as well. Can you talk a little bit about the crowdfunding for equity and the venture debt? Because I have a feeling most people listening to this aren't really too familiar with those two categories. Crowdfunding for equity, there's, you know, I actually, to this day, have heard of very few companies that have raised equity through a crowdfunding platform. So we use the platform called Mindful Crowd. I don't know how much activity is actually happening in that platform today. And that is one way of doing it. And we raised half a million dollars and that helped supplement some other capitalization that we were undergoing at the time. Variety of pros and cons to it. I mean, I think one of the challenges anytime you raise money is focusing on what's going to get you the most strategic money where people can add value that are aligned with the mission and the vision of the company that you have good chemistry with that is also kind of the easiest pathway. I mean, you don't want to end up spending two years raising your seed round of capital. You'll be dead in the water, no pun intended, but you'll be dead in the water if you end up doing that. And so one of the things that I experienced in the crowdfunding with equity was that we got a disparate number of some really terrific investors, several of which I don't know that I can name specifically, but there's some really well-known investors that were very early and pioneers around emerging food and beverage categories, for example, which was terrific. It was also really time consuming. So there's a variety of offsets on the equity crowdfunding route. Venture debt, for those people that don't know, venture debt is, I mean, it, it kind of sits in its own unique class, but it's literally debt that is affixed to warrants, right? So this is atypical for venture debt companies to start deploying venture debt dollars in companies that haven't raised venture capital. So typically what happens with companies like WTI is, you know, someone will raise a 10, 20, 30, $50 million institutional raise of capital through equity sources. And they'll sit alongside that with five, 10, 15, $20 million in venture debt. And what venture debt does is it enables you to have non-dilutive, minimally dilutive capital. So they typically take, and Silicon Valley Bank does this, and there's a variety of other institutions that do venture debt, though WTI kind of pioneered it back in the 80s, I believe. The benefit of venture debt is that it's non-dilutive or minimally dilutive capital. So you might take 12% hit on an interest rate, but if you look at an adjusted 
return basis. And you also look at what the cost of typical venture or angel capital is, which commonly ranges between low 20s to mid to high 30s as a percentage basis. Venture debt can be a lot more affordable and you know, lets people sit on the cap table with a little bit more proportion of their shares. But you also have debt covenants and debt repayment obligations that are part of that as well. So I'm glad we raised venture debt. It was a super helpful part of the equation at a time that we needed it. We've raised around $1.75 million through WTI using venture debt. In fact, we're in the, pars- we're, we're in the final, final stages of paying that venture debt off which will be great. But uh, those are two kind of atypical forms of adding capital to the stack that we pursued as well. Sounds like many of these pursuits were overlapping, happening at the same time. Is that correct? Or was it do this, that finished, do the next one, that finished? A lot of it was happening in parallel. So, I mean, 2013, raise capital, 2014, 2015, every single year, I could keep going on, every single year was a capital raise for me. This is the first year I've actually not raised capital. Ironically enough, we're preparing to go raise more capital because the market is so good and our performance is great. So we're going to go out to the market to get an injection of some additional growth capital in the first half of next year. So I'm not actually raising right now, but starting to do some preparation for it. But it's the first year that I've actually not pulled in additional capital. So a lot of this stuff was happening in parallel. I mean, you know, trying to run the company, form it, build the team, get in front of customers, spend a ton of time in front of customers, develop product, get product manufactured, deal with break fix items, product improvements, raising capital is no small feat. And it's nice to be able to have a good amount of capital today that enables us and me in particular to be able to focus on those things that are most important to the business, team formation, executive leadership, company strategy, product development, et cetera. Now let's talk about everything you just mentioned there. But prior to that, real quick question, can you talk about the challenges of a hardware company when it comes to cash flow? Because it sounds like that must have been a big issue for you with having to constantly raise capital. Well, it is. And you know, most of the companies in the Valley are really heavy on the OPEX side, but the CapEx is next to nothing. Not all of them, but most of them. And so you've got you know, your capital tied up in people. In this business, it's both. So there's a not insignificant OPEX component to this business, but there's also a considerable capital component to it. One of the ways to solve for that, that I think is really, really important is to look at unit economics. Uh, A lot of people will, I mean, this is kind of in, in other words, you know, like, will the dogs eat the dog food and will they actually pay for the dog food, right? So it's not just a function of eating the dog food, but like you want people to love the product, but also be willing to pay for the product. And so Early on, even our very first 100 units that we deployed in the marketplace, and I at one point probably knew the address and the phone number and the names and what the physical layout is of you know every one of those first locations, we didn't give away anything for free. We were always charging for the product. And part of it was it was a really important fundamental to establish a trajectory of belief and conviction and data points that would substantiate investor proof points down the road. Because I think one of the the mistakes that hardware companies make, because it is capital intensive, is if you don't have good unit economics and you don't have kind of a model that builds out on a unit of one into thousands that makes sense, you get into a lot of trouble. And I, I won't name names. There's a lot of more recent names of companies that have had high capital expenses that have had terrible unit economics and they just had this kind of 
but we're going to solve it someday, or we're going to be so big that we'll be a market domineer and we'll figure out how to make money. And I've just never subscribed to that. I mean, they're you know, probably to a fault. There were probably sometimes earlier on, we could have been a little bit more aggressive about taking a little bit of margin compression to grow a bit quicker, but having unit economics and having gross margin analysis and being able to have irrefutable data points around the solidity of our businesses and investment, I think was one of the key things in our ability to go raise capital and then to get a significant amount of capital through Blue, which is our lead and only investor in our Series B. Another way that we did this was we found a bank. There's a division of SoftBank that we developed a partnership with that provides for lease capital financing. And so getting those early data points on and charging for customers early on helped to set up a stage where we could go and develop a relationship with a banking and a financial institution so that they might be able to fund, in some instances, those, that paper and buy that paper from us, give us the cash up front so that we could more efficiently deploy our capital and not need to raise as much equity from the private market. So with all this unit economics and testing and getting data, what hindered the growth? Has it been the capital or has it just been, listen, we needed to take all these steps to get where we are. We actually are. The growth is accelerated. Well, that's a great question. I feel today our biggest constraint is around capital allocation, right? And so, you know, I'm sitting on still a significant amount of capital that's left over from the Series B. We've made some considerable investments into the leadership team, just hired a terrific CMO, hired a great CSO six months ago, uh, have a fantastic head of operations. I'm in final stages of hiring a CFO. None of these are inexpensive hires. So we're deploying that capital to build out the entire team, not just the executive team, but we've got about 56 people in the company. And so we are bringing forward some of those operational expenses and investing earlier on in new market development, product development, partnerships, et cetera. And so right now where we find ourselves is that the market and the timing is so ripe for us and our trajectory is so strong that capital constraints are the primary constraint. Early on, I think it's difficult to, in a completely new space, in a completely new category, it's a bit more difficult to raise the capital when you have not proven out enough unit economic trajectory, number of units deployed. And so we're at the point now where a lot of that stuff is just irrefutable. I've got five plus years data on 5,000 different units that are out in the market. I've got backlog of certain orders. We've got, so, you know, today I think it's, it's capital constraints. You know, probably every entrepreneur feels like that to a degree, but there are certainly times in the past that I would not have taken in more capital because I didn't feel like we could responsibly deploy it. I only wanted to take in the amount of capital that I really convictedly believe that we would be able to invest it appropriately and not take in too much dilution out of a protectionary measure for the current shareholders, as well as just the unknowns that would have become knowns over a period of time. We're now at the point where I feel like I can check all of those boxes quite easily. But the other area that I was going to talk about is simply scaling hardware is really, really difficult. There's this kind of adage that you know hardware is hard and it really is i mean it's really freaking hard i think it's a good barrier to entry and a lot of hardware companies there have been some great kind of uh post-mortems done on hardware companies and what some of the problems are one of the biggest problems is people go to build hardware and they never actually can get it built they have a proof of concept or they have an idea 
and they go to design and then they take it to manufacturing and they try to get it to production. And there are a number, a number, a number of failure points along the way. And so this is very unlike having run some CPG companies in my past, having run some tech companies in my past. CPG kind of sits in the middle between hardware and tech. But I mean, one of the great things about tech is you, you launch, you launch, you launch your code quickly, you get out in the market and then you make tweaks and you identify what the bugs are and you can adjust all this stuff real time. And you might be open in 50 cities across US, but like your code sitting up in AWS and you, you know, upload new code and drops down into 50 cities does not quite work that way with hardware when you've got you know, 120 pound piece of equipment and you're building it overseas in Asia and you're getting it shipped and the tooling and molding is being made. And that tooling and molding has to be pretty damn close to perfect because you're going to be living with that for years. Once you start commercial batches, you identify, well, we didn't think this was going to happen in the market with this product. So we got to go back and tweak and adjust it. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why we went more slowly initially. Our first production run, no joke, was four units. We did four units, then we did 16 units, and then I did like 30 units. And I remember someone asking me, you know, why are you like slow rolling this thing? Unleash the turbo here and let's go get a 300 of these and put them out in the market. And the answer is, I'd love to do that, but I don't know what's going to happen with the four in the market. Like, I know what happens in the lab and in our four walls, but I don't know what happens in the market. And so we certainly didn't do everything perfectly, but I think we did a lot of things right along the way. And we took those for first four units, put them out in the market, tested the daylights out of them, had customers give us a lot of feedback. And we went back and we identified, oh, we got to tweak A, B, and C. Because once you have that equipment in the market, you've got to live with that. And so when you get 5,000 units in the market, or more importantly, 50,000 units out in the market, that stuff better be pretty well dialed in because you've got, in our case, 120 pound piece of equipment. You've got to get it from point A to point B from the manufacturer in Asia, landed in the US, do QA on it. Then you got to redeploy it. You got to have a tech go, drop it off, install it, deliver it, have a seamless experience, and then have consumers fall in love with that product after it gets into the ecosystem. That's complicated. So in Cloud-based businesses are complicated too, but they have different levels of complexity. This one is logistically very challenging. The team has done an amazing job. I got a great group of 56 people today. For a long time, it was three, four, five, six, seven people for years uh, right up the road here in, in, in Burlingame. And they just did a great, great job of executing. But that is another challenge to scaling any hardware business is the very nature of the fact that you've got physical product and it's got to be shipped and delivered, in some cases installed and deployed, et cetera. Can you talk about that? How did you go about finding your manufacturer at the beginning? Were you just flying back and forth? What was that like? In my past, I've probably manufactured or overseen or purchased, I'm guessing, I don't know, half a billion dollars worth of nutritional products. But primarily those were supplements, dietary supplements, protein powders, shakes, some liquids. And that manufacturing was frequently in Asia, sometimes in Mexico, a little bit in the US and a little bit in Europe, but that was the most minority portion of it. So I had a bit of background in manufacturing. However, I'd never manufactured hardware before. And so the first thing, you know, you look back, many entrepreneurs have a tendency to believe that their strategy goes and executes according to plan and that they're brilliant and we're all rock stars. And that's just not the case. I mean, I, I think the case is that uh, there are many really brilliant entrepreneurs. There are some really important strategies that you put in place. But along the way, I think all of us that have experienced some degree of success, whatever the varying degrees are, have had some really wild strokes of great luck or good fortune that have come our way 
that have added grace to the equation and also some continuity. And so identifying our manufacturer was one of those. Literally, it started with Google searching. I wish I had a more interesting answer, but I mean, it was Google searching and then I'd be on Skype and like all the Chinese I know is Ni Hao. And so I would, you know, Skype someone, I would Ni Hao them in China and Korea is on Yaseo. And then I would try to formulate a dialogue with people that were generally not very proficient in English to talk to them about manufacturing and how we might be able to manufacture and if they did OEM or ODM manufacturing. And so weeks and weeks and weeks were spent just doing online recon of where's water purification done, where's supply kind of aggregate, why does it aggregate there, what companies do this on a contract basis. And as I was doing all of that, I came across a trade organization called Aquatech, and it happened to be in Shanghai in 2013. I believe it was in June of 2013. And this is basically an aggregation of some of the world's leading suppliers around water purification, water technology, and water manufacturing. There are, I think there were about 100,000 people that attended this, over 1,000 different suppliers. And so I went there for three days and was at that convention for about 12 hours a day. And I was only one of the, the only Americans and white guys that were there. I mean, this was largely specific to the Asian kind of region, but particularly Shanghai as well. And I got an MBA in water and water manufacturing, water hardware through that experience. And I remember a lot of them, I would show them kind of the designs and the ideas and the pricing and the timeline. And there were more than a few of them. There'd be a little bit of translation back and forth. And I could hear the head of like product development laughing and, the, you know, like pointing at me and laughing. And then they'd all start laughing and then I'd be laughing, but they were really just laughing at me. So I was laughing at myself as well that like this was an audacious idea or we could never get it done in time or the cost was exorbitant or you know I talked funny whatever it was that they were laughing about it was not a positive affirmation through that process I was able to weed out a lot of non targets and then I narrowed it down to about 12 to 15 targets and I actually found our manufacturer at this Aquatech convention and one of the things that I learned is that what Silicon Valley kind of was slash is to tech and innovation is very much what Korea was and is to water innovation. So if you look at a lot of the development that's happened in water purification, water technology, water manufacturing, a lot of it is done in Korea. And I've done manufacturing before in Korea and I had some great experiences, extremely reliable, relentless focus on quality, sometimes painfully slow because it's so methodical. But I ended up narrowing it down to two suppliers in China, about four or five different suppliers in Korea. And through all of that effort of kind of online searching, a lot of phone calls, a lot of recon, I talked to, you know, I'd call up the head of operations for a major water company and I would just pick their brain. I'd say, hey, look, this is what I'm trying to do. I need some advice. Are you willing to give it to me? And I would just cultivate from wherever, whatever sources that I could, information around water technology, water manufacturing, and the companies that would do that. And from there, I narrowed it down to a great partner that we've been working with for over six years group of 60, 70 people. They do all their own CAD development. We own all of our IP. We've been a longstanding partner with them. They've done a fantastic job and we'll end up getting secondary and tertiary manufacturers as we start to grow and scale domestically as well as internationally. But that was the process that we used. I mean, a lot of it was just figuring it out. And I think this is one of these things that when I bring people into the company, I think one of the dangers in scaling companies is that there's an ethos within the company that gets potentially lost. And that ethos is figuring difficult out by just 
like deductive reasoning, critical thinking, and being an absolute relentless pit bull to getting the source of information and kind of weaving through all of the stuff to get to your pathway. A lot of times, like just humans, we want things to be easy. Like we want someone to dish it up and say, hey, this is what you need to do. And this is why when you go back to Facebook after this podcast, you're going to see, you know, the Inc. magazine. I like Inc., but you're going to see like, here are the 10 things you need to be successful. Here are the three things you need to look for when you hire. Here are the five things that you need to do to like get an exit. But the reality is a lot of times there aren't just three, five or 10 things. A lot of it is you don't know what the things are and you've got to really splice everything apart and then put it back together. And a lot of that just comes through really hard grinding. And I think that was one of the things that came out of manufacturing. I mean, it wasn't, there was luck. There was a huge degree of luck in going to that Aquatech convention, but also it required a lot of critical thinking. I mean, I had, I'll give you an example of that. I had probably a 10 page kind of RFP request for a proposal, but I also had like a two to three page operating document of what we wanted in a manufacturer. And so it was privately held 50 to 80 people, wanted them to do all their own internal R&D. I wanted them to have 10 plus years in the water experience. I wanted them only doing water. In fact, I remember I had a note in one of my kind of guidance documents was I didn't want them manufacturing anything that would be contrary to our mission, like plastic utensils. And I remember one of the finalist manufacturers that I went to go visit in China, which obviously we did not end up selecting, I saw a bunch of boxes lined up in pallets that were getting ready to be shipped. And it didn't look like it was water purification equipment. And so I kind of just wandered over outside of the guidance from being escorted around. I kind of wandered to a point which they couldn't find me. And I, op- I kind of like peeked through one of the boxes and I literally saw plastic forks that they had manufactured, which I did not know that they'd manufactured. And I kicked that manufacturer out exactly after that moment as a result of that. But that came from having a a really defined operating guidance of what I'm looking for and what was going to be important for the business to be able to scale. Do you recommend all founders of companies to have that operating guidance list? And what would be some suggestions to go about creating that for your company? There are so many unknowns in the startup world that what I typically like to do is I try to isolate variables, right? And so I'm really comfortable with dealing with variables for which there's no known answer. I like it. I actually find it way more interesting and it's part of the challenge and that's the job. I also do not like trying to figure things out that other people previously have already figured out because I think it's a waste of time. And so one of the things that I would advise entrepreneurs to do is sounds perhaps a little trite and Pollyanna-ish, but I would start with the operating vision and mission of the company. I mean, I would start with fundamental principles around, okay, if you're developing an RFP, ultimately, what is it that aligns around the mission and the vision of your company? And then I would secondarily look at what are some of the behaviors and attributes that you believe based on where you are in this moment that are going to be important to your success, right? And so for us, just as an example, kind of pulling it back is um, having someone that a 10 to 20 years plus of expertise in water manufacturing or water production of water equipment was really important because I wanted them to be able to isolate variables for us and have experiences that could have been learned lessons over a period of time. The third is to put in place as best you can kind of feature and product attributes in a very clear and concise way. So when I was delivering stuff to manufacturers, I was delivering to them, here's the problem in the market, here's what we're solving for, Here's the use case of this product, and then all of the features and specs that were desired as part of that. 
So I guess I'd really go back to like vision, mission of the company, fundamentals, operating principles, some of the behaviors, and then kind of feature specs, use cases, intended use applications of that. And then you revise as you go. I mean, I think this is one of these challenging things about running a company is that, you know, in fact, I was thinking about it on the way here, you know, life just doesn't work for any of us the way that we expect it to. And that's probably a good thing in most cases, even though, you know, when you like to control things and you like things to turn out the way you want them to turn out, it doesn't always feel like that's the case. But I really fundamentally believe that, you know, one of the things that you have to do is you have to, you have to be fluid with the learnings that happen in the marketplace. And so what I would say to a founder is you can't go and outsource really critical functions that are strategically important to the company before you go and do them yourself. An example of that would be manufacturing. I'll still go today. We're in the process of looking at alternative manufacturers for secondary products that we're in the process of developing. I've got my head of operations that just took three trips to Asia in the last 12 weeks to source manufacturers, but I'm going to go visit the top two to three myself and make sure that you know, I'm pressing flesh and testing it out and you know, validating what they believe to be true. Same goes for sales. I think a lot of people that are founding CEOs tend to think, oh, like I'm just going to go hire somebody and they're going to go sell it. Yeah, and maybe they will, but you might also get a false negative. You might be getting uh, potentially a bit of a false positive, but usually more often than not, you're going to get a false negative. And so I think the key is develop the template, but then you got to go battle test that template. And the only way that you can really battle test that template is by getting out into the market and having the experience and hearing it firsthand, hearing it from manufacturers, hearing it from people that have failed at it, hearing it from people that have been successful at it, hearing it from customers so that you can make real-time adjustments. Because in this market, like the thing that we bring to the table is the ability to operate with speed. But speed is kind of part and parcel to having know-how, knowledge, market assessments, and kind of validation around all of those things. Now, it sounds like you've done an amazing amount of work with your company. Can you talk a little bit about the real story of what some of the sacrifices a person might have to make to be a founder of a company. I mean, most of us just hear these tech startups, these founders making millions, and that's it. We don't hear the whole story. We do not. You know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, I'll kind of answer this in two different ways. I have a general perspective, but then I also have an answer that I, I give when entrepreneurs call me and they say, hey, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, and Z, and should I do this? I try to be really careful to never discourage the idea at all. I might give them some things to think about. I think people are very often consumers and people are just very quick to say what's a good and a bad idea. And in many cases, we don't know about what is a good and a bad idea. I mean, I think probably 90% of innovative ideas were probably have been seen as a bad idea by the majority. So I think battle testing ideas and providing people critical feedback on here's what I think is good about this idea. Here's some of your risks or challenges with this idea that you should think about is a really healthy way of trying to help move someone along critical thinking without crushing it. Because, you know, really, what do I know about their particular idea and the research that they've done? I will, however, be pretty vocal with them about what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I try to offer a healthy enough dose of encouragement that should they desire to do it, they probably can do it and attempt it. But the reality is that for 90 some percent, you know, it's probably 95, 97% of entrepreneurs, they don't make it. And these are all the stories that you don't hear about on Facebook. I mean, you hear about all the great outcomes and all the parachutes or the liquidity events or the IPO that once the founder gets unlocked from an IPO, got tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. The reality is that that just doesn't happen. That is the reality in the majority of cases. And the other dose of reality is that you're going to be putting a huge portion of your life 
on hold. I mean, I look at my own personal life. Actually, I mean, that's probably one of the things that's most negligent in kind of the whole like spectrum of myself is I have tripled down my focus on my two daughters, Royce and Zoe, that are teenagers. One's a freshman and the other is a junior in high school. And then I've super focused on the company, you know, and being there for the company and operating at my highest capacity as best I can. Certainly doesn't mean I'm flawless. I've made many mistakes along the way. But my intention right now is all efforts focused on a bit of personal development, my daughters and work. And that leaves very, very little time for other things. This idea of like, you can have it all is total. I mean, that just does not like, that sounds great in an article that gets posted on Facebook to drive clicks, but that just is not real life. Real life is you have to make very definitive, tough, tough decisions of what you are willing to sacrifice to go after what it is that you want. That might be that bigger thing. And what people don't see when, I mean, it's funny, people sometimes, I mean, they see my social media, they see Rich Rasgatis in social media, and like, I'm not a celebrity in the Valley, but people see Rich Rasgatis in social media that are in my network, and they say, you guys are blowing up, and this must be fantastic, and you're traveling all over the place. Well, you know, I'm not, what I'm not doing is I'm not posting pictures of me inside a manufacturer at 3 a.m. after I've been up for like 21 hours, or, you know, what, I, what I'm not doing is posting Instagram stories of, pulling all-nighters to work on a pitch deck or an investor follow-up piece. Or, you know, what I'm not doing is posting pictures where you're alone on a Friday night because you don't really, you haven't developed that many personal relationships or you've forsaken, unfortunately, a lot of your personal friendships because you've had to make tough decisions. And uh, so you just end up working on Friday night as well, even though there's plenty of work to always be done. There's a whole amount of not only sacrifice, but also loneliness that comes with being an entrepreneur. And I think what ends up being a pretty considerable amount of grit, because you're going to get the kicked out of you along the way. And it's not the ways that you expect. You'll get all the expected ways, but you're also going to get a healthy dose of unanticipated, unexpected kicks. And it's really difficult. And that's why I think you know, my counsel to people that are looking into going into entrepreneurship is it's not don't do it, but it's do it, but make sure you really know what you're signing up for. And if, for example, you're married, make sure that your partner knows what you're signing up for. And don't do it if you can't get buy-in along what that looks like. Because if you don't get that buy-in or they kind of think they're in, but they're not really in on it, it's probably not going to go well. I mean, I think one of the issues that we all have as entrepreneurs is we're optimists. I mean, I, I try to have a healthy dose of pragmatism and reality and, and think through worst case scenarios. But the reality is, yeah, I think I can pull everything off. You know, I think I can pull off like doing X, Y, and Z and let's throw ABC in there. And I have to really guard against my optimism around what I think I can pull off versus, all right, like what can you really do? And what are the sacrifices you're going to have to make along the way? And for those people that are on that journey with you, are they also prepared to make it? Is there any way that if anyone wants to find out more about your company or yourself, is there any way for them to get a hold of you or research this knowledge? Or is there anyone also that you want to give a thank you to in this process? Great. Thanks, Sean. Uh, just in terms of obtaining information from or about Flowwater, info, I-N-F-O, at myflowwater, M-Y-F-L-O-W-A-T-E-R.com is the best way to submit an inquiry. If you'd like to get a free trial, you'd like to get a Flowwater unit or learn more about the company, go to myflowwater.com. Again, one W. Another way is, you know, Instagram at Flowwater uh, is the Instagram handle. And then uh, your last question in terms of more about me at Rich Rasgatis on Twitter, Instagram, 
uh, are also ways to be able to access more information about me. From a gratitude perspective, I would like to just mention there are a lot of people that were believers in this. And so I am incredibly grateful for the first two, three, five, seven employees that came on board and that believed and drove through this and built this. But that extends now to 56 people that we have at the company. And then we've had some terrific advisors and some great early on investors. Great. And I would also like to thank Jerry at Tech Futures Group, who is the one that actually made the introduction to Raz. So Jerry, thank you. His contact and all the information that Raz had just mentioned will be in the show notes. So if you'd like to visit our website at theinvestorspodcast.com, click on Silicon Valley to access those show notes. And Raz, thank you for your time today on Silicon Valley. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be on the show. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.